Welcome back to another extended version of Kick-Ass People. I'm your host, Brandon, the Hard Hat Mitchell from the Emergency Exit Podcast. That's right. Joining me here in the K-Brand Studios today is a woman who isn't afraid to get her hands dirty. She's striving to make changes in death care, not just limited to how we perceive death, but in trying to reduce our last footprint on Earth. Through green burials, which include skipping the embalming process to using biodegradable caskets, the modern mortician is striving to lift the veiled hood on the cloak of death. With her is Texas's first therapy animal in funeral care, Kermit the dog. Melissa, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, it is. Uh, Kermit, first of all. Kermit the I think, dog. I think Kermit probably just steals the show wherever he goes, right? Yes. He's just, oh my god. Tell me, tell me a little bit about Kermit. Uh, Kermit is two years old. He's a border collie, and he is the first certified therapy dog working in funeral care for Texas. Currently, there are only two that oh. are certified. Right. Um, there are a lot of dogs that are in funeral homes, but they're considered just uh, comfort dogs. Mm-hmm. Kermit's been through training with uh, the Dog Alliance, which is based in Cedar Park. And when he hit one year old is when we could start the training for that. And then we took our exam. He got to basically test early. Uh, so instead of the whole three month program, we tested it about two months in and he received his certification. So he goes with me on removals, like from the initial point of contact with the family. He's most of the time he's there to the arrangement process. Like when I sit down with them and talk about um, their loved ones end of life choices um, or what they're choosing for them and then also the grave services or funeral services so he's just with you from beginning to end he's pretty much with me 99% of my time like where's the dog if I leave him at home it's like ah I feel like I left my phone at home you're missing something yeah (laughs) he's amazing and so and what what makes him a uh, therapy animal in funeral care he's just he's trained as so he actually has the certificate Mm-hmm. Of being a service animal and not like some people go buy the vest and try and just... Oh, mercy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so there's there's different levels. There's an emotional support animal, which the way it's supposed to be done is you're supposed to have a letter from a doctor or something saying there's a medical need for the, for the animal. Mm-hmm. The next step up is a therapy dog, and that's where you go through the training and actually get certified where he can be insured like up to a million dollars through the dog oh, wow. alliance when we go on therapy visits mm-hmm. with them. Like, they can send him to Bowell Reading or to a nursing home or to a hospital and different things like that. Um, so he's the first one that's that's working in funeral care in Texas that's actually gone that far in his testing and gotten an actual certification oh, for this. Okay. So there's not really a title for grief therapy dog, but I kind of use it because he is therapy for the grieving. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and then the next step up would be a service dog. And service dogs are usually assigned to one handler and they perform medically related tasks. I see. Retrieving yeah, so of items, like specific items or helping them mm-hmm. cross the street, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, so he's, he's below that one. Yep. All right, cool. He's, he's right in the middle and he also serves as an ESA, but he's able to fly with me. Oh. Yeah, so I get to take him all over the country. Literally 99% of the time. Yeah, he's he's with me a lot. (laughs) All right, well, everyone dies. Uh, The ways and methods in which we've dealt with death have have changed over the years. And right now we're in, uh, I guess what you'd call a a death movement? A death death positive positive movement. movement. Uh, Tell me about that. All right, the death positive movement is kind of similar to the way the sex positive movement took over in the 70s. It's encouraging healthy conversation about death and dying and end-of-life choices. 
So over the last few years, it's gained more steam. There's um, an organization called the Order of the Good Death, which is a nonprofit which focuses on educating and uh, bringing, um, what are they, intellectuals, um, deaf workers, including doulas, deaf doulas, um, home funeral guides, um, and then just the general public and alternative morticians like myself together to kind of help spread this movement and the education that goes along with it. Okay. Um, you mentioned the Order of the Good Death. What, that sounds like an elite force of like Jedi assassins. <laughs> <laughs> They're all brown-headed girls with bangs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like that. that's part of the initiation. You have to cut your hair and have bangs. <laughs> oh, man. No. Um, they've, they've got a mix of uh, male and female main members, and then there are supporting members, and I'm considered a supporting member. Okay. So um, they are based all over the world. Um, some of my favorite members are Sarah Wumbold, uh, who focuses on finding green cemetery space here in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, Caitlin Doty is the leader, um, and like she started it, and she has a uh, YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician, which is incredibly informative and funny. I, I bet. Ask a yeah. Mortician. It's like, uh, like a Reddit AMA or something. True. <laughs> yeah. And then there's animation involved and, and cats and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's good stuff. Like the cremation of cats? Oh, or no. just Oh, okay. Oh. Just cats in the video. Oh. Yeah. Okay. She used to have a cat at the beginning when oh. she started the YouTube channel six years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and the meow has since passed. But like her intro has these flying cats that hold up the sign that say, Ask a Mortician. <laughs> it's cute. I like it. Uh, another uh, member that I'm really fond of is Pia, Interla Pia Interlandi. She's out of Australia and she makes garments for the grave. Um, they're biodegradable, uh, like shrouds and just full burial garments for people that are choosing a natural burial. Mm -hmm. And she recently had uh, a display at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, mm -hmm. um, that had a Basically, I call it a hypercolor shroud because you touched it, it was black, and then when you removed your hand, it was white. Mm -hmm. And so the point of that fabric was to kind of uh, show the art and, and encourage families to touch their dead, to have hands-on. And okay. um, so she does a lot of stuff in Australia. Who else out of that group? Uh, Amber Carvalli is Caitlin Doty's partner in Undertaking LA, which is their funeral home that's in LA that does everything that I want to do here. <laughs> yeah, you're striving for that. Um, yeah. You mentioned that the shroud, is that something like the, the mushroom suit? Speaking of the mushroom shoot, 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 <laughs> suit, um, kind of. Kind of? Uh, the product, as far as I know, is not actually functional. Um, I actually got to test bury a mushroom burial shroud with the creator of it, Jay Rimley, mm -hmm. uh, outside of Austin here. And when the burial was done, we had a, a family that chose to let us do this for her mom. They wanted natural burial anyway. Okay. But in order to do the science behind it, I donated all of my professional services for free. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this one, they put PVC pipe into the ground where they could run a camera down and actually check and see oh. if the mushroom shroud fabric was doing as Jeremy Lee had thought that it would do in her preliminary experiments. Uh, when she started, she had like 
fish tank or something in her living room and she tested the mushroom spores on fingernail clippings and hair clippings and it worked. Um, but it is my understanding that it possibly did not work um, in real life application because not long after the testing and the soil samples were taken, the hype behind the burial shroud just disappeared and she stopped responding to some of our emails. So mm. we're not sure what happened with that, but there is... She doesn't is, want to own up to it. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's going to go back. It's, it's kind of become a fancy mushroom smelling garment that you can be buried in so mm, okay i see well yeah maybe maybe she's hitting the lab again and just maybe working on it and just yeah benefit of the doubt because the hope was that it, the mushrooms would take the toxins in the body and turn the soil into a more viable um product i guess for is growth the human body as it decomposes is it that toxic well if somebody that's been buried that has a lot of chemo in them you know those mm -hmm. kind of chemicals and things like that she was hoping that the mushrooms would you know destabilize i don't know science behind it <laughs> science she, words <laughs> science stuff she wanted the mushrooms to help make the ground soil where the body was buried better than it was before the body came sure out. yeah um you mentioned you, you try to eliminate the cremation process what uh what are the dangers in that is how toxic is it uh well let me pull up my notes oh she's got you <laughs> prepared with some notes something like that so I don't want to completely eliminate cremation. Some people are going to be okay with flame-based cremation. Also for a cost factor, it's a couple hundred dollars less than the new way to cremate, uh, which we can talk about in a second. Yes. Um, but flame-based cremation, um, so a conventional gas-fired crematorium will blast 320 kilograms of carbon dioxide per body it cremates into the atmosphere. And that's the same amount of carbon dioxide that's released by a 20-hour road trip in your car. Just in the breaking down of one, one, one body. Ride. With all the fossil fuels that are used to burn the fire mm -hmm. and to get going. And then cremated teeth fillings release 2 to 4 grams of mercury into the air. Mm. So for everybody that has fillings, yeah. you're releasing mercury into Doesn't the atmosphere. Doesn't sound like much you know, on a small scale, but... Everybody dies, right? You know, and not just one person a day, right. you know, just natural and you know early death. But that's that's kind of kind of scary when you think about that. Just because they just, I'm sure they just vent it right up into the air, right? right. No sort of filtration. How is that been allowed? Mm. <laughs> yeah, charge. I've learned more since moving to Austin. There's things called lobbyists mm, and, yeah. and things like that that get paid money to sit around and, and make laws go through or not go through. Mm -hmm. And so um, my theory is that the funeral service industry has invested so much money into crematories and trying. When cremation became popular, um, it was like a slap in the face to the industry because they were so denial of it. They were all about embalming and putting bodies in the ground. So they didn't really face it head on. And so then it kind of hit them in the face when it became popular with you know traditional families. Mm -hmm. So they invested all this money into it so they could all have crematories. And now there's a new way of cremation, which is water-based cremation. And instead of using flame, it uses water. And it's currently, it's called aquamation. Mm -hmm. So it's currently legal in 15 of the 30 states in the United States. Um, it is legal for our pets in all states. And what it does is reduces the body to a skeleton with water instead of fire. Water and lye. So it's alkaline hydrolysis. Okay, why is it not legal for humans? Well, that's very interesting. 
The reason why it's not legal in all 50 states yet is because two little words are missing from whatever legalese has to be on there. Um, two words. Two words. Is it, that's right? No. no. It's or water. So the way or that cremation water. is currently described is flame reduction of the body to a skeleton. And they okay. want to say flame or water in order to make it legal for water to be... To be used. Right. So we have to wait another year and a half in Texas and pay a good lobbyist, those of us that want this to go through, mm -hmm. to get it through. Because it was all the way to the floor and then it was stuck on a bunch of other junk last year and it just fell just off. Just never made it. So you need, yeah. you need to slide somebody, you know, a $100 bill and a handshake and oh, say, so hey, much push more this. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if only it were that easy, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're just two words away from it being legal in Texas, and with the education that we're doing now, um, and this death positive movement, informing mm -hmm. people as much as we can, it's going to happen. All right, cool. And you said it's how long? Another year and a half? Another year wait? and a half till it'll be on the floor. So something about flameless cremation, it typically produces less than a seventh of the carbon dioxide of normal cremation. And then what, what uh, form does it leave the... You said it leaves the bones and then they mm -hmm. essentially crush the bones into a, a powder, like a sand or something like that? Right. So okay. between fire cremation and water cremation, you're both left with a skeleton. And those are removed from the retort or the tank, depending on which method you used. And then it's placed into a crenulator. And those bones are ground up into a kitty litter or sand-like consistency. Mm -hmm. So when you have flame-based cremation, what you're left with is kind of the kitty litter consistency. It's gray because it's been burnt. Um, and then with the water-based, you're left with a white shimmery powder. And it the, the contrast is day and night. It's okay. so much cleaner looking, um, aesthetically appealing, and then better for the environment. Yeah. So. All right. Um... What, uh, how fast can a body go from being pronounced dead to going into the ground, so to say? Like, not necessarily in the ground, but, you know, once the whole process is done from, like, death to the per their, bodies be their body being processed. Like, what, how long does that usually take? Depending on circumstances, it could be as soon as a couple of hours afterwards if somebody were prepared, like... Jewish faith Paper and Muslim wise. faith. Muslims want them the same day in the ground. Um, Jewish usually the same day or the next evening, I believe. Um, the real rigmarole comes from cremation because in the state of Texas, we have to wait 48 hours before moving forward. Because once you cremate, whether it's fire or water, there's no DNA left. So you mm -hmm. have to wait the 48 hours and then you have to get county and judge approval. Really? In order to move forward with cremation. And then... Seems you, a little excessive there. One well, of those unnecessary steps? Maybe, except because of the fact that cremation literally leaves you with no evidence of anything. If for some reason, you know, it was an unexpected death and they needed to do more research on the body or something, that's why they kind of, yeah, to slow everything down. So typically, in my experience, between death and final disposition, whether it's burial or cremation, it can take anywhere from two to seven days, depending on the, the bureaucracies that you have to go through in the paperwork or what the family's kind sure. of timeline is. And sure. thankfully, these days, we have these amazing uh, refrigeration units that hold bodies in them. 
So we don't have to rush because there's no immediate decomposition. Yeah, once... you get them, you get them on ice, and you kind of keep them there for a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it slows everything down. That works out. Uh, you mentioned uh, green burials. What? How, how I know we talked about the the aquamation, the mushroom suit. Uh, what about the recomposition? Recomposition. Is, so I... that's a different term altogether. Oh, that's like it? composting the body. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, what? Can you tell me about that one? Yes. Yeah, so there's this amazing lady in Seattle named Katrina Spade and she came up with um, well if you can compost a cow why can't we compost humans so she started yeah so she started with the urban death project and it has since evolved into uh, recomposition because it sounds better than urban death project (laughs) the the general public at large is still a little bit thrown off by that the urban death project (laughs) yes so what that will enable things to happen later is she's envisioning um, a multi-story building where families can participate in carrying their loved one to the top and placing them on the soil at the top. By the time the body moves through the different layers and comes to the bottom, even the bones are soil. So then that soil could be returned to the family to plant a garden or it could go into a community garden or different things like yeah. that. So that's what that is. I mean, the, right I, I can only imagine the smell. How would they combat that if no, it's, it's composting? It, well, it's under other layers of things, and if mm-hmm. it's in a building, it would be able to be vented. Oh, okay, so they're the fully like enclosed building, ventilated. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. It seems, uh, I like that idea. Yeah, you know and they not? also have it for our pets already, too, like out in Seattle. It seems like everything awesome comes out <laughs> of Seattle first. Uh, Rooted is a company that will compost your pet. And then return the soil to you in a jar. It's a beautiful presentation, and it's an alternative to you know what we're doing now. Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, it seems like animals, you know, our pets kind of get the first to. They're almost like we're experimenting with it, mm-hmm. you know. Or I mean, you know, no, don't experiment on animals. Like no, but you know, <laughs> they're just trying it out, trying out these different methods, and see, you know, because as you mentioned earlier, you know, our pets now are family. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just makes sense that we want to take care of them in death the same way that we would want, you know, a family, you know, or a loved member, loved one, mm-hmm. family member or a loved one. Edit point. <laughs> <laughs> Chop. Yep, that's that's gonna get cleaned. Um, what um what what's the absolute best method to be clean on the environment when it comes to dealing with a dead body? Are do are they do they all kind of have their own pros and cons, and it's an individual. Uh, they all have pros and cons, but I uh, believe that natural burial is the best way to go. And which one uh, involves the natural burial? Natural burial is on its own. So we went from recomposition and now we're moving into natural burial, mm-hmm. which means the body can be wrapped in a shroud or a blanket, something biodegradable, or placed in a wicker basket or a pine box. There's absolutely no embalming involved, no chemicals um, no plastics, no metals. Um, what's becoming popular across the country as this movement is spreading and education is getting out there is, uh, conservation burial parks where the land is a safe place for, you know, local flora and fauna as well as, you know, animal life and things like that. So outside of Austin, we have, you know, three, burial parks or places that allow for natural or green burial um, and so the one extreme is like Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Cemetery 
um, they have a green burial space. So if you look at the traditional cemeteries with like the flat mowed yard and things like that, theirs is very similar to that except they have one little section off to the side where they allow you to do non-embalmed and non-vaulted uh, burials. Mm -hmm. The next um, step up would be uh, a place that's like outside of San Antonio in Lavernia called Countryside Memorial. It's a pioneer cemetery that they've revived and are doing new interments there, interment meaning burial, mm -hmm. where they're doing shrouded burials or um, biodegradable burials, you know, like in the pine box and things like that. And they have a few headstones that are marble and ornate and things like that. They're kind of moving away from that as they're growing. Okay. Um, so that's why they're kind of, they kind of were to me considered a hybrid cemetery, which is what Our Lady of the Rosary would be because it serves both um, embalmed bodies and non-embalmed bodies. Uh, but they are moving more toward being a completely natural burial space. And then the next step from that is just in Cedar Creek, we have Eloise Woods Community Natural Burial Park, which is also kind of um, an animal or conservation place because nothing is going to get developed on there. Mm -hmm. There's land animals, not land animals, there's animals that live there like bunnies and birds and stuff like that. Every now and then she's got wild hogs that go running through. <laughs> Armadillas live there. Um, but it's a safe place for animals and the deceased. And she allows, and so does Countryside Memorial, they allow for pets and people to be buried together, which is uncommon, very uncommon, and just now becoming more of a trend. Yeah, okay, have them have, you know, here's Fluffy alongside, you know, Grandpa or something. Mm -hmm. I get yeah. that. It's, uh, it's definitely a change in the industry because, well, I mean, we've all seen Pet Cemetery. We know how that movie turns out. <laughs> it's just trying to break that stigma there. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, and natural burial, it literally sounds like, you know, I'm sure you hear some people, oh, when I die, just throw me in a cardboard box and go like that. That's exactly what this is, right? Yes. Pretty much. I mean, maybe not a cardboard box, but you did say like a pine box or just something biodegradable. Or it's... a ditch. That's what I used to always hear. So earlier... Oh, yeah. Or a ditch. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier <laughs> in my career, I see I started out not knowing anything about Green Barrel. They don't teach you that in mortuary school. Yeah. So um, I used to sit across the table from people making funeral arrangements and you'd get the funny old man that go, oh, I don't care. Just throw me in a ditch. And I'm like, mm, okay. Well, as I learned more and found out about Green Burial, I got to the point where I'd start counteracting that. I'd be like, well, 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 we can, but we have to talk about it first. Let's find your ditch. And it needs to be in a cemetery. <laughs> yeah, hey. But yeah, I have buried people nude before that are just wrapped in a, in a sheet, a simple hospital sheet. Mm -hmm. um, people in full outfits that are cotton or something like that. There was one guy that was buried in his cowboy boots. You know, we make some... Uh, allowances for certain materials that sure. may not completely biodegrade um, but yeah it, it kind of what kind of got me off on the whole natural burial thing was I didn't un when I was doing my apprenticeship I didn't understand why we had all these old cemeteries out in the country that never had vaults before and certainly the dead weren't embalmed at that point but yet we were making them do it now and it didn't make sense to me. And I was like, why are we doing this? And I wasn't getting any answers out in West Texas. So I started <laughs> migrating and making my way to Austin. Okay, to there you go. <laughs> <laughs> What's, um, why, why embalm? Uh, well, the industry will tell you embalming. Yeah, let me get the industry's point of view. <laughs> embalming um, preserves the look of the body, um, makes it safer for, um, 
it's a sanitation method. Okay. Um, it stops decomposition. What my take on it is, is it makes the person more, look more lifelike. It very much is an art. When I first got into this industry, I really did like embalming and restorative art. Like if somebody had been damaged in an accident, like half their face was caved in, I can rebuild you out of wax, you know? Oh, wow. It was very artistic and it was, it was nice to be able to give families that kind of closure. Mm -hmm. The longer I was in it and working with other funeral directors, it became a selling tool. They were like, you have to ask for permission to embalm as soon as you go pick up the body so we can do that. Well, when they do that, they get to sell the family a viewing and they get to sell an open casket funeral mm -hmm. and then they get to sell that ornate casket and it becomes the basis for upsells. Sure. Um, now that we have refrigeration, it's not necessary. Now, a dead body looks way different than an embalmed body. You have a mannequin look, which may or may not have cakey makeup on, um, but they have dyes and tints that are that are injected into the body, you well, know, to kind of... And a lot of people, when they go to a viewing of a family member or something, they, oh, it just looks like he's asleep or something versus... And that's, that's the embalming. Right, hmm. right. And it's also very toxic. It's got a lot of carcinogens in it. It's... Oh, but you're already dead, though. Oh, yeah, but what about the <laughs> embalmer, you know? Yeah, of course. I guess the person doing the work, I, I'm sure they probably have to wear full protective gear, right? Yes, and even then, I still have friends from Mortuary School, what I call Mortuary School 1.0. I went twice. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, think that about that. Like, if you're, yeah, you're an embalmer, okay, you're dealing with dead, but the dead person in front of you isn't the immediate threat. It's the chemicals you're using to preserve the body that you're then going to put in the ground. Why, why do you, like, I've, I've always struggled with that question. Why do you want to preserve it, especially in this day and age with re refrigeration as readily available as it is? Why? And so it's just got to be a, you know, a commercial move, you know, capitalism. There's, my, there's a place to make a buck. You know, so I guess yes. that's why they would want you to get the permission right away because they're going to get their staff working on everything, get the caskets ready, mm -hmm. get them all lined up so they can select which ones. Mm -hmm. and so you dealt a lot with like dead bodies and uh, you believe in ghosts? I'm uh, not really sure, but something's happened in the past oh, okay. that always made me wonder. So Still can't figure it out to this day. No. And I'm hoping somebody was just jacking with me, but there was, there's no way it could have been. So here's the thing. Back when I went to mortuary school 1.0 in Dallas, Texas, I was uh, doing clinical work at a corporate funeral home in Arlington. I'll just say it, more funeral home in Arlington, Texas. And they had a chapel that was separated from the main building by like this little garden area. I forget what you call it, but it's like this little garden area that was over, like had a, like a covering over it, but it was still kind of outside. There was a way to get to it from the back, you know, so you could wheel the casket from the prep room directly into the chapel. Well, we had had a visitation that night, and the students, me and another guy and another girl, were getting ready to close down. And they were like, hey, go check the chapel lights to turn the chapel lights off for us. So I walk outside, and I head to that door, and they had a lamp on in there, and they always left the lamp on. That was something that the funeral homes did back in the day, was they would leave a lamp on by the front, mm -hmm. so you could see it from the street, and that meant you had a body in state. And that was also, you know, kind of in the smaller towns for a way for the townspeople to know somebody had died and there was the body at the funeral home to be viewed the next day. Sure. So we always left that lamp on, but I was going to go check the other lamps and just make sure the door was shut. So I'm skipping along, being a ding-dong, get up to the door, and I see a shadow move in front of the light. 
about the time my hand is out to grab the knob, I go to turn it one direction and it spins the other direction in my hand, like forcefully. And at that point, I noped out of there yeah. and went back into the main room and both of the other students that I was working with were standing in that room. There would be no way for them to get all the way from the other side of the building back around the back into the front. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not going back out there. Yeah, I don't, I don't, whatever's <laughs> on the other side of this door, I don't need to get to I have tonight. no, no need to go over there. So... Right on. That's really the only thing I can think of that, that I've experienced. That's the one that still sticks with you. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. Um, the the death industrial complex. Why why are they so resistant? Resistant or reluctant? Probably resistant to change. Uh, I fully believe that the industry has been built one certain way that everybody's comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know really why. I mean, I want to say money um, because in my experience, you know, coming from get the family to embalm and moving up into sales like that, it's what they're comfortable in. It's been a very stagnant industry up until now, mm -hmm. and people that speak up and want change are usually shot down by what we're considering the old guard. Um, so I think it's just... They're set in their comfort zone. They've been undisturbed for so long. I mean, since the Civil War, <laughs> this stuff has been going on. And that was a long time ago. I know. So, um, so now it just really becomes that they don't want to see progression, maybe. And it's not everybody. Um, it's, it's, it's a small few, but those small few are powerful. Mm -hmm. and, and still very relevant in their communities or their states or their associations. So um, I, I think as the years go on, it's going to be a lot easier. Like already Green Burial is starting to gain traction even with, with some of the corporate funeral homes because they see it as a moneymaker when they can charge more for not mowing this area or not putting pesticides down or you know saying that that they're not going to use a vehicle that drives. They're taking it kind of overboard with the whole green burial thing. Mm -hmm. So it, it becomes more like greenwashing. Yeah. Um, so that's why we're kind of trying to use more of the natural burial terms and, okay. and steer people away from the corporate cemeteries in that case. Right on. Um, how are deaths taken care of when it would be members of the family that would you know, deal with the death and prepping and washing and clo clothing the body before burial. Like, you know, I guess before the Civil War, how was... How was everything yeah, done? Yeah, how was it done before? And it was predominantly done by women, was it not? Yes, it was. Um, and it's kind of coming full circle where women are leading, leading this movement. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so the way the death was taken care of in the past was just like births. Births happened in the home. They mm -hmm. call in a midwife. Um, when a death happens in a home, they call in family and friends. They set up the uh, deceased in the living room, which is why it was called the living room now, because back in the day, it was called the parlor, which led to funeral homes starting off being called funeral parlors, you know, parlors oh. and then homes. Um, so they would set the, the person up in the living room. Family and friends would come with food, food. Uh, conversation and grieving and celebration would happen all in one place and then the family would go out to their land and or the cemetery and dig the hole and, and place the loved one in the ground and it evolved into undertakers stepping up first so when the civil war happened they started setting up little tents on the battlefields 
with all their chemicals and caskets, you know, so they could ship the soldiers back home without, you know, putting them on trains for them to decompose. They pumped these chemicals in them, which in early days were things like arsenic and very, very toxic chemicals. So we've come, we've come a long way, but it's still dangerous. Uh, so when undertakers and the Civil War ended, um, the cabinet makers were making uh, caskets and then they were like, well, let's take this a step further and just bring the loved one into our care. And then the families were leaving the home for the funerals and things like that and going to funeral homes. Mm -hmm. It kind of evolved from there. I see. I got you. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the um, being in the funeral and death business that maybe just people don't don't know about? It is a 24-7 job if you do it right. Um, or you can go work for the corporate sludge and get well, because, nine to five. Yeah, because people don't just die between nine and five. I know, for <laughs> sure. So I'm sure you've gotten like the, the 3 a.m. phone call or however, email, and oh, yeah. you have to go go do your thing, huh? Yes, that's, absolutely. That's... Like last night, for example, two o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. I head to a tiny little trailer outside of Bastrop mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. I'm familiar with with that area of Bastrop. It's beautiful, I'm sure, during the day, but at night it was just a little it's bit very on the dark. creepy side. Yes. It's very dark that time. And it was super freaky. The guy had, like, uh, scarecrows right near his front door. <laughs> and he was alone in the house, and so it was me and two sheriff's deputies and flashing lights and everything. <laughs> oh, and the scarecrows and the strobes. Oh, yeah. So That's... it was a little bit weird, but, yeah, most times deaths are happening in hospices, hospitals, homes. Um, would you like to hear about the embalming process? Sure. Okay, that's gross. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, uh, my apologies to anybody that is inadvertently asked to have their grandmother embalmed and is now going to hear this, what they really do. They were much nicer to your grandma, I promise. So here's what happens. When the body is brought into the funeral home care, it's placed on a ceramic table or a metal table that is, um, got its foot end toward either a urinal or a drain sink. Um, and then whatever comes out of the body goes directly into the drain. Okay. So first an incision is made right along the clavicle bone to raise the carotid artery and the jugular vein. And two incisions are made in those veins. Uh, threading is pulled underneath them to kind of keep them from sinking back in, you know, to where you have to fish them back out again. Sure. And a metal, what is called a cannula, which is like an L-shaped tube, uh, is set into the artery, which is then clamped onto a rubber tube that goes to an embalming machine. And that machine holds the fluid, which is a mixture of water and the chemicals, mm -hmm. which will have dyes in them, you know, to pink up the skin and things like that. Because you, you lose your pallor as your, your blood starts to settle. So from there, they will take these long, what they call forceps, and they'll stick that into the vein. The veins are really stretchy usually, unless somebody has had uh, some kind of diseases that might affect that. Um, but those things will pop open and hold the vein open and it goes directly into the heart. And um, they'll start pumping the embalming chemicals in through the carotid artery and it will go through the entire circulatory system. Mm -hmm. And then blood will rush out. Yeah, you said it's got, it flushes it out, yeah? Yeah, so you have this dark red blood going down the body, down the drain, mm -hmm. you know, on the sides of the table and into the sewer system. Um, if for some reason the blood stops flowing, they take those forceps and they push into the heart and, and pinch and pull out, and you're pulling out clots of blood. Oh. Yes. Wow. 
Yeah, so <laughs> if you have a clot, you got to get the clot out. So it kind of breaks the clot up and you pull that out. Once you have the pink embalming fluid start flowing out of the vein and all the blood is gone, they'll tie off the vein first, push a little more embalming fluid in it, and that kind of infuses that fluid into like the tips of mm -hmm. the fingernails, through the cap and fingernails, fingers, through the capillaries. It just gets into the skin and that's what causes the firming oh, and then the coloration. Um, so from that point, they will tie off the artery, of course, remove that cannula. So you've got little thread, you know, tying the embalming fluid into place, and then they will sew up the hole that they cut mm -hmm. or the line that they cut along the clavicle. That's why when you sit down with a funeral director, typically they'll tell you to bring something high collared and long sleeve for grandma. Yeah. Because uh, they don't want less low cut where you can <laughs> see this big old gash and, and baseball stitch sewing um, to, to close it up. Mm -hmm. And then from there, mm. there's this long, I'd say one, two, two and a half foot sword, basically, that's oh. like a hollow needle. Very sharp point on the end. Mm -hmm. and this does not sound good. <laughs> they hook that up to another tube that okay. is attached to a sucking device. Oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. And they're going to take it two inches over and two inches up from the navel, mm -hmm. and that's where you stab it in. And you go up through the diaphragm, and you want to make sure you hit the heart and the lungs, and up in the throat, and the stomach, you're puncturing every organ in the body to uh -huh. pull whatever fluid is left in that out. So if you're pulling stomach fluid, it looks like ground coffee grinds. Um, if it's fluid from the lung, it's usually very frothy. And the tube that's attached to this sword, which is called a trocar, is clear. So you can see the fluids see that are coming it. out. So you have to know where you're at. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. If you hit too hard, you're going to go back right out through the other side and you're going to have to sew up a hole in something uh, back. I don't want to have to do that. No. So sometimes you'll dull your uh, the tip of your trocar when you hit the um, spine too many times. So you have to you have to know where you're going based on where you're pointing it. Yeah. And then you have to turn it around and hit the bladder and the intestines um, multiple times to make sure. Because that's where most of the change starts to happen first is in the gut area. Sure. Most of the bacteria gets that bacteria bacteria uh, gets active in that area first so after all of that is the fluids are sucked out it's not the organs the organs stay with the body the whole time so the the misconception that the organs are burned or thrown away or something even in an autopsy is not true they all go back into the body okay. or stay in the body then you hook up this very toxic fluid called um, cavity fluid to this tube and this trocar and you start stabbing the same directions again, and the suction pulls the fluid out of this cavity fluid oh, bottle. Remove, yeah. Okay. So it's pushing that fluid in, and it's petrifying those inner organs. It makes like, my innards just kind of sting a little bit thinking about you that. You should smell the stuff. It's terrible. It's very, very toxic. Here's the thing. This company that's in the funeral service industry came out with scented cavity fluids, like <laughs> cucumber and cinnamon and a baby powder and it was just like why and the, at conventions and stuff they'd be walking around smell this and i'm like oh, this is cavity fluid it's got a skull and crossbones on it you guys i don't understand so uh yes that is the embalming process that hole is then closed up with a little round plastic um looks like a little tiny tornado mm -hmm. um, because it's got threads on it so it will twist into the skin and, and stay like a like a cap? Yeah. Hmm. So it caps that hole shut and ta-da, you have an embalmed body. 
That just seems completely unnecessary in this day and age. I believe it is completely <laughs> unnecessary. Because then I'm sure those chemicals remain toxic for a long time. They could. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, if, the, if that area floods and they come up, like in Louisiana, uh, places that are likely to flood, you know, when that happens, the caskets go floating away, sometimes the bodies come out, and hey, um, now you've got a body decomposing in your front yard with uh, this toxic fluid all right there. It's probably, we need to look at this a little differently. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining me in this extended version of kick-ass people. Thank you. Um, Melissa, where, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Facebook under the Modern Mortician. My Instagram is pretty popular. I'm able to post a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff on my Instagram story, mm -hmm. as well as my regular, almost daily posts showing different things, uh, educating people on end-of-life stuff. And then, of course, there, you come for the death, you stay for the dog, or you come for the dog and you stay for the death. Yeah. So, does, uh, does Kermit have his own Instagram? No, oh. he's on mine. So, oh. hey, I get everybody on this one Instagram and you learn a lot either about the dog or the death or the death. Yeah. yeah so and that's under, years. I gotcha. Yeah. It's under at mod underscore mortician there. And uh, tip Twitter, titter <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is also at mod underscore mortician. And then I have my website, the modern mortician. Awesome. Um, all right. If, uh, if you guys out there enjoyed this episode of kick ass people, be sure to subscribe to emergency exit podcast, wherever you get your pods. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at EMEXPod, check out our ever-expanding website, emergencyexitpodcast.com.